I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Andrea Freeman. She's a professor at the University of Hawaii and author of the book Skimmed. Skimmed is a book which chronicles the lives of America's first surviving set of identical quadruplets, the Fultz sisters. The quadruplets were born in 1946 to Annie Fultz, a black Cherokee woman who had lost her ability to hear and speak as a child. Following the birth of her quadruplets, the white doctor who delivered them saw an opportunity. He sold the rights to use the sisters for marketing purposes to the highest bidding formula company. It was an exploitative relationship that followed the quadruplets for the rest of their lives. Skimmed is a book about race, poverty, exploitation, and food policy. Andrea and I open our conversation with her describing the story of Annie Fultz and the birth of her quadruplets. Annie Mae Fultz was a Black and Cherokee woman. She lived in Reedsville, North Carolina, and was married to a tenant farmer who everybody called Pete, who was 20 years older than her. She lost the ability to hear and speak in childhood, and she had six kids already when she learned that she was going to have triplets. So because of the high risk of the multiples, she went early to the hospital, spent a few weeks there. And on the night of their birth, she found out there was another little girl hiding behind her sisters, and she had the first recorded surviving identical black quadruplets. And so the girls, who were very adorable, became instant celebrities. There was reporting about them all over the country. Universal Studios sent a camera person. The New York Times reported it. And suddenly, Annie Mae, who was not used to the spotlight, became famous. Yeah, so she had the unfortunate um, luck of having a really terrible doctor, right? To just put it put it simply, he was unethical in every possible way. He was a white supremacist. Was it Dr. Klenner? Yeah, Dr. Fred Klenner. He loved to speak vocally about his support of Hitler. He maintained segregated waiting rooms, and he took advantage of the fact that he delivered the quadruplets to begin experimenting on them on the day of their birth. He had theories about the healing powers of vitamin C, and he injected them all with a fairly large dose on the day they were born. Then he decided that he would name the girls, even though Annie Mae had picked out her own set of names. And he gave them all the first name Mary, and then the names of his wife, sister, aunt, and great aunt. The next thing he did was auction the girls off to the highest bidding formula company to become their corporate godfather. So what was Annie doing all of this time? Did she have any say as to what he was doing? So I know about the naming thing. So with the naming, she was trying to think of names. And I think she was, you know, going over names with her sister or, you know, someone in her family and they couldn't decide. So he took it upon himself to come up with a name, you know, the name Mary, like you mentioned. But all of the other decisions that were being made, did he even consult with her? And I know this was 1946. So she probably felt that, you know, with this white doctor, you know, she was black and she was Cherokee, that she didn't have a lot of choices. Exactly. Um, So there's race and class wrapped up in there. And uh, no doubt, uh, gender and, (laughs) you know, every kind of oppressive element there is, that um, he basically felt that he could do whatever he wanted, and she didn't have the power to stop him. And also her, her abilities, and, you know, she could not speak or hear, and he just completely took advantage of her. 
So do you know about the deal he made with the with the formula company in relation to I mean, was there any justification as to why formula was needed? I mean, could she actually breastfeed? She could. But in those days, it was not encouraged really for anybody. It is not like now, but especially for uh, black women and a poor black woman, there would be no expectation that she would do that. So I just want to make the distinction. So like back then, pet milk, the pet milk, which you which you talked about earlier and formula, they were one in the same. OK, so they were one in the same. And this is you talked about this earlier. This was basically just sugar and milk. So it wasn't very healthy. No, it wasn't very healthy. No, uh, it should have been given to, to babies. I mean, you know. Right. Yeah. So so the deal that he cut with a formula company, it basically changed the trajectory of their lives. So not only was this just a marketing deal, but they were kind of entangled in this for their entire lives. I mean, there was something about him. You know, not only did he cut a deal with the companies, but there was something about the land. You know, they had a house built on land that I think he owned. Yeah. The way that he had the deal made and he had his sister-in-law who was also the first woman to ever be a, a state chief justice. She was the trustee of this deal and he organized it so that he and his family would benefit. So Pet Milk purchased some land from his father-in-law, but the land was just you know barren and hilly and impossible to actually get anything out of. Uh, but he had a house built on that land with a nursery with a very large window and then put an ad in the newspaper so people could come and pay to look at the girls on the weekends. Very reminiscent of human zoos. And then he had pet milk pay for nurses and the nurses were his nurses. And through them, he was able to maintain access to the girls throughout their childhood and continue his experiments. Wow. Well, so... Oh, God, where to start? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> it's a lot. So, so what kind of experiments did he do beyond the vitamin C that he was injecting them with when they were in the hospital? He continued doing that throughout their their lives. I mean, until they moved away. Right. You know, that's a very Hitler-esque um, thing to do. I mean, right. you know. his hero. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, experimenting on these, you know, people of color. Um, but I want to talk about how they were marketed you know, these quadruplets and their connection with the formula company or the pet milk company, because I thought it was very clever and nefarious the way that they marketed the way the girls looked. They, they were very beautiful quadruplets, right? The mother was black and Cherokee. And I, I know in the book, you recall some of the marketing texts, right? They were described as, you know, having, you know, this beautiful brown, you know, caramel colored skin because they were light skin. Some of the marketing materials would describe their straight black hair. So they were playing into the culture of colorism to market these girls to presumably other black mothers. Yeah. So uh, a lot of what you're referencing is the newspaper articles that covered the girls and would kind of rapturously describe their looks and how proud the black community was of the girls. And they were the first black models for formula because leading up to that time, companies really hesitated and were afraid to use any black models in their advertising. They thought that it would alienate their white consumers who they prioritized and also believed in this trickle-down theory of marketing that whatever white people wanted, black people would want too, which of course was wrong. But before this, it was really only cigarettes, alcohol, and beauty products 
that were marketed directly to black consumers. Right. But so because of the way that the, the quadruplets look, they were palatable. Yeah, right? they were a perfect kind of crossover campaign for this new venture. They saw this marketing opportunity because, you know, they thought, you know, there's some money here in the black community that we could that we could earn. Because I think before this, they were marketing directly to white mothers. Right. And there had been a lot of these multiple campaigns, but they were always white babies. So what was the transition between, because I know at some point there was a, a practice of doctors mixing formula in their offices for for mothers, right? Yeah. So formula was actually marketed to white mothers, like we said, but what was the crossover to this mass marketing of formula and using marketing in this way? Yeah. So pediatricians did begin by doing individual formula mixes for babies, and that just became too much work for them. And when this profession of pediatrics began, there were a lot of problems with legitimacy, right? They were afraid that people wouldn't take them seriously because, you know, they're dealing with kids and women. And uh, they received a very large boost from these formula companies who partnered with them to sell their products and give out the formula free. And as I'm sure you know, this is something that's continued into the present. So the companies boosted the pediatricians and the pediatricians boosted the formula companies. Formula became medicalized and masculinized, right? So whereas mothers were first viewed as the experts on what to feed kids and how to care for them, pediatricians wanted to become the experts. So they pushed formula, which was something scientific, something controlled, something in a lab, you know, made in a laboratory so that they could take away the expertise from mothers and replace them. Ah, uh, that makes sense. That makes total sense. So I want to talk about, you know, the culture of breastfeeding at this point, right? So it became medicalized, but that took a long time to happen, right? And, you know, presumably, I'm assuming that breastfeeding generally, you know, being culturally accepted that ended first with black mothers and it goes all the way back to slavery. Is that is that fair to say? You know, at some point, formula feeding formula to babies became popular with white mothers and black mothers. And then there was this trajectory where, you know, white mothers kind of went back to, to you know breastfeeding and black mothers kind of stayed. And I think that black mothers were hit first just because of the expectations around them during slavery. They were expected to to, you know, shirk the needs of their own family, you know, kind of abandon their own babies in favor of breastfeeding the the white children. Right. Part of the control that slave owners had over the people they enslaved was to destroy their families and to steal the breast milk of black mothers for their white babies. And there were also beliefs at that time that black breast milk was better and that it would protect babies from malaria, which was a big problem at that time. And so a lot of myths and stereotypes were invented that black mothers were cold, they were uncaring, they neglected their own children, and we get the mammy stereotype that black mothers are great at caring for white kids, but not their own, right? And all of this justified this cruel practice of taking black mothers away from their own babies to steal their milk to give to white babies. Yeah. 
But, you know, it was a really complex arrangement because, you know, like you said, there were a lot of myths around, you know, why black mothers were best to, to feed, you know, the white children versus their own. I guess I don't understand what was the messaging around their not being ideal to feed their own children, aside from the fact that, you know, I mean, obviously it wasn't true and they were cursed and they were, you know, enslaved. Was there kind of any like medical or scientific arguments behind that or any myths even? The idea was just that they're bad mothers. And this is something that we still see today, right? So the welfare queen is the embodiment now of the bad black mother, the myth that first arose during slavery. So the idea is, first of all, that black women are there to serve white people, right? And that there is something innate about that and that also they naturally do not care well for their own babies. Yeah. So they were they were superior in caring for other people's children, but not their own. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like you said, it's very complex. (laughs) Right. Because, you know, there were some myths that were that were, you know, spread in favor of their breastfeeding white children. And there were some, you know, that were mixed in that that, that they weren't favorable to to breastfeeding white children. Like I think that, you know, some people thought that if a black mother or a black enslaved woman breastfed a white child, they would begin to take on the characteristics of that, of that woman, right? Of the wet nurse. Yes. The racism was always present. So while at the same time believing that black breast milk was better, there was also belief that it was tainted and that it might be problematic. Right. And we see this later with uh, wet nursing when it became more of a hiring type of experience. And we see people afraid of what having a woman of color or a black woman breastfeed their child might do to the child. But at the same time, we've seen this through line throughout history of the idea that black mothers should serve white children before their own. Right. Um, So let's talk about the stereotypes you alluded to. So there's Mammy, there's the Mammy stereotype and also the Jezebel one, which we haven't really talked about. Those two stereotypes kind of led black mothers away from breastfeeding. And the Jezebel one specifically is interesting because the culture around black women, black enslaved women not having autonomy over their bodies and being kind of displayed, unclothed, right? That I think translated to there being some shame around breastfeeding in that you'd have to expose your breast. Is that true? Yeah. And that has also stayed with us over over the many years. And we should also talk about sapphire which is another stereotype about Black women being particularly vicious, uh, ball-busting types who, now this is the angry Black woman stereotype, right? It's evolved. But it also says that Black women are not maternal. Yeah. So back then, there were no alternatives to breast milk. There, there may have been like cow's milk, perhaps, but there was no such thing as formula or pet milk. What people gave their kids at that time, who if they were not breastfeeding or they couldn't get somebody else to breastfeed, which would be common, was a gruel. So uh, the little babies just got fed gruel. What is gruel? I think I know what it is, but uh, what is gruel? Yeah, it's kind of like a porridge. Yeah. 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 Um, there was a very high uh, infant mortality rate. And we see the disparities in infant mortalities between black and white babies that existed in slavery are the same now. Wow. Oh. 
So I want to talk about the marketing campaign, you know, starting in 1946 with the false twins and some of the features of the early ad campaigns, because, you know, obviously many of them were, were racist. But there are some that you mentioned in the book. There was one by a marketing exec. His name was David Sullivan. He wrote a manual of sorts to, you know, how you can market these products to, to black people, right, to black mothers. What were some of those features of some of the early ad campaigns to bring in those black mothers? The idea of marketing to black consumers that was put forward was that you should use black models, that you should not use racial stereotypes, and that you should show black families in positions of comfort and economic success. And uh, so a lot of the portrayals that you see in their early ads are not really realistic in that there was, of course, a black middle class, but it was not as prominent as these ads would have you believe. And I think another thing that's really interesting about the marketing is that black women breastfeeding is something that you rarely see positively, aside from in ads for formula. When did we make the transition for breastfeeding being a positive thing for white women versus formula, right? Because that did happen at some point. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really gone up and down throughout history. Yeah. Yeah. Because what we see is these kinds of, you know, the waves so that a lot of people are not breastfeeding. And then somebody says, this is a public health crisis. And then suddenly we see a big push for breastfeeding. But what happens during those pushes is that Black women get left behind because their personal circumstances are not conducive to actually breastfeeding because they have to go to work. And so whereas white women in this country have traditionally been told you should stay home, your motherhood is your first job, you know, perhaps being a wife, anyway, a homemaker, Since slavery, the idea is that Black women will work and their role is not in the home. So the idea of having a leisurely life and staying home with your baby and breastfeeding, it was just never realistic for Black women. Right. And so one of the themes that you can see throughout this book and just generally, and it's true now, is that it's clear that, you know, time is a privilege and time is a luxury, you know, because (laughs) breastfeeding takes a lot of time. And it's something that black women have never had the luxury of having, you know, obviously during slavery, they didn't have any additional time to take care of themselves or their family. And now it's true, the people who work the most and who who earn the least, you know, have the least amount of time. And that time can be taken to take care of their families in the most fundamental way, which is, you know, breastfeeding. Right. So now breastfeeding is like a status symbol. Because it's signaling something to the world about your your financial position. So what was the link between the government pushing formula to Black families? The influence that the government has on specifically Black families using formula is not something very obvious, like you're saying, to push, right? But what they do that I think is the most impactful is that the U.S. government is the largest purchaser of formula in the United States. And that is for the WIC program. And so the USDA gives out formula for free through WIC, which is support for women and children. It's a a nutrition program. And Black women are disproportionately participants of WIC and receiving this free formula. And the USDA really needs to do this because what happens is they get rebates from the formula companies 
And the money that comes from formula companies supports the program. So what happens is women who are receiving formula from WIC breastfeed at much lower rates than any other women. And the government support of the formula industry through WIC also kind of sells it to other people, even who aren't on the program, because they can see that certain products are endorsed by the USDA. And so they assume that it is, you know, equal to or superior to breast milk. So this works in a lot of ways, but it particularly reaches Black women because of their disproportionate participation in the program. Yeah. So it's beyond formula, because I think if I remember, this is another thing that like, you know, reminded me of my childhood, because I'm pretty sure my mother either used WIC and it isn't just formula. Like they actually provide other types of food, which are low quality, right? Like what are some other foods that they provide? I don't know. Like cheese. Yeah, I mean, oh, like government cheese. Yeah. Is that part of the WIC program or no? I don't know if it's, it's through WIC, um, but any of the USDA nutrition programs are being used by the USDA in large part to get rid of surplus commodities. And those are foods that are subsidized through the farm bill that there are surpluses of because consumers don't want to buy them. And so these foods are purchased by the government and then either resold to people through partnerships with fast food companies or through the USDA nutrition programs. And what happens is that the foods that they turn into, like you know, high fructose corn syrup through corn or unhealthy milk products or tater tots, whatever it is, they dominate the diets of people who receive food through these programs who are by definition low income and disproportionately people of color. Yeah. Now, how do we go about, you know, breaking that chain, right? I mean, it just on the surface, it doesn't sound like a bad thing to provide food for people who are in need and to use our surpluses instead of throwing them out. But and obviously, if these aren't desirable commodities, they probably have a low nutritional value, right? I mean, I'm I'm not really sure how one goes about solving this problem. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> we we don't want to see the government using poor Black, Indigenous, and people of color as basic, you know, disposals for the food that nobody wants, right? Right. Food insecurity is a huge problem. And as you're saying, this is one solution to it. Doesn't sound bad from that perspective. But another problem is the number of deaths and diseases and other, you know, conditions, cancers that we see happening because of poor nutrition and the role that the government is playing in that. And when we see the extreme racial disparities in those conditions and deaths, we can trace some of it back to the fact that the USDA is distributing low nutrition foods to low income people of color. So is one of the solutions, I don't know if anyone's looking at this from a policy perspective, but is one of the solutions to just be more efficient with, you know, these kind of low quality foods that are, I guess, the surplus from these low quality foods. And so that there isn't so much left over and we could reinvest that in healthier foods to give to these families. So the, the reason there's a surplus is because of the subsidies. So the industries that produce these foods are overproducing because they're getting money from the government to do it. Oh, got it. Yeah. So if we change through the farm bill, 
which products get subsidized, the surpluses would go away. But those industries are very powerful lobbyists, and so we don't see that change. Another thing that would help is not giving the USDA these dual and conflicting mandates of supporting the agricultural industries that are controlled by these powerful lobbyists and being in charge of nutrition programs. <laughs> if these were separate entities, then they wouldn't be able to complete their task of getting rid of surplus food by giving it out to people in the nutrition programs. People with the you know, least access to the political process to try to make these kind of changes. Yeah. You know, I, I get the sense that this probably isn't on the radar of most elected officials right now, because I don't hear a lot about this. Though no, this is not on the radar of a lot of people. And it's uh, unfortunate because it is a huge aspect of racial justice uh, and, you know, all kinds of, of justice issues because we're seeing these slow deaths throughout the community. And in this time of COVID-19, it's actually accelerating deaths among people of color. And so it's it's a huge problem. And, you know, you, from one perspective, you can look at it as a kind of genocide. But it, as you're saying, it's not really on people's radars, either from elected officials or from racial justice advocates, you know, from all the places where you would expect it has not been a priority. Right. I mean, you know, now that we've talked through this whole thing, I can clearly see how this is a racial justice issue. Um, you know, we talk a lot about universal health care, right, or health disparities. And everything could be linked to poor nutrition, right, at some level. Absolutely. And so I talk about this in the context of what I call food oppression. And when we think about the issues we've been talking about today with formula, I call that first food oppression because formula is also a food, right? And breast milk is a food. And it's another area where there are dramatic disparities and black children and women in particular are not getting the benefits that, that other women and children are and are suffering because of it. And there's just no real vocal movement about that. The connection between the government and the formula industry is so strong that well, last year in the World Health Assembly, when Ecuador tried to introduce a motion you know, uh, to promote breastfeeding, the U.S. threatened Ecuador with trade and aid sanctions just to put that forward. That's how allied the government is with the formula industry. Well, you know, I just have to say that, you know, and I'm always, you know, whenever we have these conversations, I always try to see the other side, right? Because uh, I'm not playing devil's advocate. I don't like playing devil's advocate. But <laughs> just in this case, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, there's this whole movement of, you know, not pressuring mothers who can't actually breastfeed, right? Or in, you know, in the cases that we've been talking about, you know, mothers who, you know, I mean, I guess this is a whole other layer of the issue who work so much that they don't have time, right? I mean, you know, that's a that's an income inequality issue, right? But so what is the solution? Let's just say the solution for people are women who can't breastfeed. Like it's an actual medical issue yeah. and they, they can't produce milk. I mean, formula is a miraculous product, right? I mean, it, yes, for people who need it, it is a lifesaver. But for people who don't need it, what the justice around this is around choice, because it's just like food. It's framed as something about a person's preferences, right? A cultural thing, a laziness thing, uh, all of this redirection toward 
the person and their choice or their inclinations, as opposed to the structural factors that make it so difficult or impossible. And those include things you've mentioned, like the legacy of slavery and the potential shame of being naked outside, you know, the naked breasts. And all of these things tie together, but most strongly with, to do with work and the fact that our society does not accommodate women who want to breastfeed or people who breastfeed, not always women, but it makes it almost impossible, right? So our entire society is structured against it. And as with all things, people who feel this the most have, have the least privilege, right? And often that is Black family. Yeah. Maybe this is your, I mean, you're writing books right now, but maybe this is your mantle to pick up. I'm trying. You should run for office. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> really? Writing's not enough? Talking to you? That's, you know. Yeah, but then people don't know that this is a problem, obviously. Like, yeah, like I mean, even it, me, it like I stumbled incredible. upon this on by accident. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. It is such a, a missing piece. I mean, it's just such a marginalized issue. It's not something a lot of people have looked at. And yet, probably if you talk to, you know, if you took five minutes in your or two minutes when you're interviewing people and talk to them about food and their own personal experience of the people around them and diabetes and all, I mean, you would probably surface this as an issue, right? Because it's something that affects everybody all the time, but it just hasn't been politicized in the same way as other things. Yeah. So in closing, can you tell me what happened to the quadruplets? Uh, if you read my book, it is not all depressing that there are many lovely stories about the girls, but ultimately uh, they did have the sad circumstance of all being diagnosed with breast cancer uh, by the age of 45, and three of them died of it within three years. And Catherine, the last one, survived until a year and a half ago, uh, but of course desperately missing her sisters, and they were taken away from their family when they were young at the age of six and had never lived with their family again after that. So they tried to break into show business. That never really worked out. They had fascinating lives, uh, but their story really underscores the exploitation that they experience while at the same time having incredible opportunities, being going around the country and being celebrities. Uh, yeah. You know. Was anyone able to ever make a link to his experiments to their breast cancer? Because, you know, that could also be genetic. I don't know, you know, what happened with the mother, but right. um, was there a link? Do we know? Well, they believed. So Catherine said she thinks it was the shots that gave them cancer. Um, apparently, it is very unusual for multiples all to get breast cancer. So that is likely not genetic. Uh, there might also be the fact that they grew up with very little to eat aside from pet milk, right? Because they had a lifetime supply um, and they were poor. So I don't think they ate very well otherwise. And that was probably the main focus of their diet. So I mean, all these things, who knows? Yeah. yeah. So they remain poor, right? Like, so they didn't actually benefit other than having this house where people could actually come and look at them. Sorry, this is making me angry. No, I know. No, uh, they you know, this having this house. Terrible poverty. So what what would happen is their nurse. So they got the salary from pet milk, but the only thing they could spend it on was was clothes, basically, that the company wanted them to wear for their appearances. So their nurse would go, appeal through the black newspapers to readers to send them like a book or a toy because they had nothing. 
And so they looked, if you see their, you know, their ebony spreads and they're gorgeous and they have these beautiful matching accessories and outfits, but they had nothing at home, nothing to play with, nothing to read. Um, Yeah. So it's sad. That's that, that is very sad, very heartbreaking. But um, I think people should know this story, you know, to avoid the mistakes of the past. And Andrew Freeman, thank you so much for talking to me today, and thank you for all of your work around this. And I look forward to your, your you know, more work from you, and possibly a run for office. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. <laughs> we'll talk if you were willing. My campaign manager, I'll I'll think about it. <laughs> you know what? I can't even get the mics to work. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you. I really enjoyed it.